For those listening to this sermon that were not with us in our worship this morning, we began with Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and verses 26 through 29, and then we read and considered together the 124th Psalm. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, they would have been swallowed up in the calamity that they faced in David's time. And if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, we would be swallowed up as well. Romans chapter 9, I want to read to you the first nine verses. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Amen and amen. Amen. We thank Thee, Lord, for Romans chapter 9. Open its words to us that we might thoroughly understand it. The first five verses are the inspired preface or introduction to the doctrine of these three chapters pertaining to the rejection of much of Israel and the election of a remnant among them. In verse 6, he's going to make a declaration that's profound and we never want to forget it. And you always want to use it to counteract those who want to speak about Israel or the Jews or Jerusalem, or Zion, or other aspects of Old Testament Israel. The statement is very profound. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. There is a distinction and division made within the nation of Israel. The apostle, in verses 8 down through around verse 17, is going to prove it by personal illustrations in the lives of Isaac Jacob and Pharaoh. And then about verses 18 or so, and don't make this an outline yet, about verses 18 through 24, he'll prove it by consideration of the sovereignty of God. 
generally considered. And then after verse 24, he will prove it by quoting the Old Testament scriptures of the Jews. So that's the order of the chapter. We want to deal right now with the sixth verse, which begins with the word not. And it's an unusual sentence. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. What the apostle has said in the first five verses would cause Jews especially to raise an objection, and so the apostle is going to answer that objection here in the first half of the sixth verse. I hope that you have read it and listened carefully enough to know that Paul has not yet identified the danger or the trouble that's facing Israel. In the first five verses, he has said that in truthfulness and honesty, he has a great burden for Israel. And then he has listed Old Testament blessings to and through Israel. But he has not said at all what the problem is, what the danger is, what he is desiring to save them from. It's unsaid. It's implied only. And it's implied quite vaguely. This is not timidity on his part. It's wisdom and prudence. Because he first of all uses those five verses to express how much he cares for Israel. And then he lists all the advantages they truly did have over Gentiles. And then he says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. And he starts out with the word not. And that word not is going to modify or explain his great grief and his continual sorrow by limiting the problem to not be as extensive as it appears from your first reading of those five verses. That it's not as extensive as some might object against him that were Jews. Before declaring election within Israel, leaving many rejected, which was a horrible thought for Jews, Paul's going to answer an objection. Did Paul's grief for Israel in verses 1 through 5 imply or state that God had promised great things to Israel and they had not come to pass? Had God made promises or covenants with Israel that had failed? That's what a Jew would think. If you are so worried about Israel, if it is this great grief to where you would be accursed from Christ for Israel, God promised, this is how a Jew thought, God promised that all Israel would be saved, that all the seed of Abraham would be saved. But they understood that as fleshly Abraham. They understood that as the fleshly seed of Abraham. They understood that as the whole fleshly ethnic nation of Israel. And the apostle's going to correct them on that error. But first of all, he says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Paul is using not here to modify or explain his grief and his continual sorrow. To this point, after five verses, he hasn't explained what the problem is yet. Whatever concerned Paul in his preface, it's not quite as bad as it seems at first pass. Paul's doctrine of God rejecting Israel which he has now implied and he is about to explain. Paul's doctrine of God rejecting Israel did not contradict or overthrow the covenant promises of God to Israel to make God a liar 
or at fault in the matter. Not what you're thinking in response to my great grief for Israel, that I shouldn't have such great grief because God is going to save them all, because they are the true seed of Abraham in a Jew's mind, does not overthrow his covenant promises. My grief is not because God has failed. My grief is not because the word of God has fallen to the ground. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. What is this word of God? There are issues in this chapter that we could blow over very easily, but we're not going to. We want to answer every word that the Lord will show us. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. What is this word of God? Is it God's Old Testament covenant promises to Israel that appeared to have failed by Paul's grief for Israel? There shouldn't be grief for Israel. They're all going to be saved with an everlasting salvation because of God's covenant promises made to Israel. That's how a Jew thought of them. What is the word of God? That word of God is mentioned in verses 4 and 5 where it says the covenants and it says the promises and it says the giving of the law. So in three of the blessings in verse 4, it's referring to the word of God. Is it that word? Is it the New Testament gospel? And the word of God that by, that by it is preached and its lack of reception by the nation of Israel that Paul is referring to here. Or, a third possibility, is it God's unconditional promise to Abram and his seed of salvation and an eternal inheritance? Of those three options, we're going to choose the third, not excluding the first, but excluding the second. The third being God's promises to Abraham, which were what that nation trusted in most of all including the covenant promises God made to Israel on Mount Sinai in the giving of the law and in his covenants and promises of various kinds. And we make this choice for these reasons. If we keep reading right after verse 6, immediately is brought to bear the promise to Abraham. And it's called the word of promise. Because we're dealing with what is the word of God. And I hope this is not too tedious for you but I hope that you'll follow along so that we understand what is being said here and what the apostle meant by this unusually blunt and short sentence, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. If we keep reading in the seventh verse, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, so we notice that Abraham is immediately brought in, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise. Remember, there were promises back there in verse 4. The children of the promise are counted for the seed, for this is the word of promise. So there is a word of God. It was a promise from God, and it was a word of God, and it was given to Abraham, and it was that he was going to have a seed. And in that seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, his seed would be more numerous than the stars of heaven and the sandwiches by the seashore. His seed would destroy all of their enemies. And his seed would have the entire land north, east, south, and west of where Abraham traveled during his life. 
So when we look at not as though the Word of God hath taken an effect, and we must ask, and we should, as you read the Bible, what is the Word of God here? It is the promises made to Abraham, including, including, but in a minor degree, the covenant promises made to Israel in the giving of the law. They're the promises to Israel, but the mainly they're the promises given to Israel through Abraham, the father of Israel. The first reason is because of the context right here. The second reason is because Israel's greatest confidence and trust was in their relationship to Abraham above all others. Their confidence in Abraham was greater than their confidence in Moses. It was in Abraham that Abraham was the friend of God, and God had said things to Abraham, and indeed he did, that he would be their God and Abraham would be his son, and his seed would be his son, and how much he would bless Abraham, and that those who blessed Abraham and his seed would be blessed, and those who cursed Abraham and his seed would be cursed. And on and on the promises go from Genesis 12 to Genesis 24. In the Bible, there are so many things said about Israel's deep and abiding ties to Abraham. That I, and I can only give you a few. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We want to know what is the word of God that Paul is saying had taken effect and the Jews should not argue that it had not taken effect. He is not yet to the gospel. He'll get to the gospel in verses in chapters 10 and 11. Matthew chapter 1. Do you like how your New Testament opens? First verse of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He doesn't trace it back to Moses. He couldn't because he wasn't the son of Moses. Moses was in the tribe of Levi and the Lord Jesus Christ came through the tribe of Judah. But he traces it back to Abraham. Look at chapter 3, when John the Baptist bursts on the scene at the Jordan River in the wilderness of Judea, preaching his gospel. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. The Jews took great confidence and placed their trust for time and eternity on the fact that Abraham was their biological father, that their birth certificate said they were of the seed of Abraham. Throughout the Bible, we could just keep going. I have four rows of references here on this particular point. Look at John chapter 8. For our quizzers in our midst who are learning the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. They should know some of these verses. John eight thirty three. Now we've had Matthew introducing his Gospel with the relationship of Jesus to Abraham. We have had John the Baptist knowing what would be in the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes at his baptism, that they would be saying in themselves, we have Abraham to our father, and we don't need your baptism. We don't need to repent. Abraham's our father. John 8, 33. They answered him when Jesus had said in verse 32, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. 
How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Verse 39, They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Verse 53, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? Verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Of course, many other references could have been pulled out of John 8, but the whole debate there was Jewish confidence in Abraham and the Lord Jesus Christ pointing out, you may be the seed of Abraham, but you sure don't act like Abraham. You want to kill me. Abraham didn't do things like that. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Why aren't you seeing my day and rejoicing? Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. There are many other references that could be turned to, and Paul would stand up in an audience and say, Men and brethren, what comes next? Children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God. I pointed this out last Lord's Day, but my emphasis was on something other else. It was on, and whosoever among you feareth God, referring to Gentiles. The Jews had all their confidence in Abraham. And it goes on and on and on about their relationship to Abraham and God's promises to Abraham and the word of God to Abraham, which was abundant with promises and covenant promises. Remember, he was given the covenant of circumcision as an outward visible sign of promises that had been made to him verbally. The word of God that had come to him. So this is the second reason why we choose that the word of God here is God's promises under the Old Testament, primarily to Abraham, of God's blessing on his seed, which the Jews took to mean everyone that had come through Isaac and Jacob. The third reason that we would choose this is God's promises to Abraham were first of their kind and greatest of their kind in the Bible, which extended right into heaven, Abraham's bosom. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that when Abraham was circling around in the land of Canaan, he wasn't preoccupied with that land. He knew that he was looking for heaven, a country, a heavenly country. He was looking for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, not whose builder and maker were first of all the Jebusites that built the city of Jebus, which became Jerusalem. He was looking for a different place. He was looking for a heavenly country. He was looking for heaven. And it's so much so that heaven is Abraham's place and object of travel that it's called Abraham's bosom. Because when Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which for the Jews was to go to the ultimate place. It's where Abraham was because it's what Abraham had been looking for his whole life. Back to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Not... As though the word of God hath taken none effect. Here is the apostle in five verses, Romans 9, 1 through 5, describing his great concern for Israel. The Jewish response, the Israelite response would be, what's all the concern? God has given his word to us. He swore with an oath that Abraham and his seed would endure forever, that he had made with him an everlasting covenant. Not as though the word of God hath taken an effect. Don't you take my doctrine and don't you take the implication of what I have made in the first five verses and think that God's word has failed. 
You have misunderstood God's word, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. You have applied them mistakenly to all of Israel. So by my concern for Israel, you think God has failed. His word has been broken. He has either been unwilling or unable to perform His promises, His covenant promises by His word. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. By the way you have understood the promises to Abraham and the Old Testament promises through Moses, through the giving of the law, you have made them unconditional and you have made them to extend to the complete nation of Israel. You are in error on that point. God's word has not failed. You have failed in your application of it to the whole nation and that unconditionally. When we look at the promises in the Old Testament, some of them were very conditional. If you disobey, promises are taken away. If you obey, the promises will come to bear. Those are the earthly promises. The unconditional promises, where there wasn't a condition performed by any Israelite or by Abraham himself, applied to spiritual and eternal things through Christ. They're unconditional. And we cannot get those two things mixed up. We cannot make the promises of the land unconditional, or we're going to be like the Schofieldites and the Dispensationalists and the others in their thinking today that God still owes the Jews that little piece of property out there at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. That was a conditional promise. Because the unconditional aspect of that promise was heaven. And it is this distinction which the New Testament teaches repeatedly that men get so confused on. They want us to be sending F-15s to Israel to help God protect that little place. Well, now if God was with them, they wouldn't need our F-15s. They haven't done anything special. If you were to compare our military hardware that we've given them compared to the hardware of Egypt around them, there's no difficulty in figuring out why in 1967 the war only lasted six days. Do all of you remember that? I was 10. How old were you? In 1967. You were 8. Okay. Well, there was a six-day war, but because they had our military technology and hardware, they were able to defeat World War II surplus being used by the Egyptians. Right. But we get all, we get very confused if we don't understand about those promises. And I'm chasing a short little rabbit here, but when you read the Old Testament, even if even when it says an everlasting covenant about the land, it would be everlasting if they didn't break the covenant. But they broke it. So they lost the land. But the aspects of the land that were truly unconditional, that were in Christ, that were spiritual and eternal and heavenly, oh, they're kept. Because they're based on the condition of the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling His role in the covenant. Not as though the Word of God hath taken an effect. Don't perceive by my concern for Israel that God's promises to Israel have failed. You have made the mistake of applying them to the whole nation when they only apply to part of the nation. For, as the second half of the verse teaches us, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. They were not to be understood as applying to every physical descendant of Abraham. God's word has not failed. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. See, to, to a Jew, if a single Israelite failed to receive the blessings and promises of God 
of an eternal inheritance of being in Abraham's bosom than the word of God had taken none effect. Because to them it was an unconditional, absolute, fully extensive promise to that nation. But we know better because we've read the second half of the sixth verse already. And so we know where the apostle is headed. But that's what the words mean. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. It, it's not as though God's promises have failed. Because they haven't. If Paul's grief was unlimited, that is, all of Israel had been rejected, or if Paul's grief was limited that any of Israel had been rejected, to a Jew, that was a violation of God's promise to Abraham and his seed, because they understood it as every physical descendant coming out of Abraham. Look back at Romans chapter 3. Do you remember this from Romans chapter 3? I'm sorry for the reading assignment I gave you last night. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul deals with something so similar and it's helpful to us because of the words that are chosen here. Romans chapter 3 verse 1. Remember in verses 1 through 8 of Romans chapter 3, there are four dialogues. This is dialogistic reasoning, meaning in the form of a dialogue, the apostle poses the question that he knows his opponents would be asking and then he answers it and he does it four times. And there's a pair of verses for each one of these. This is a form of reasoning where you just go ahead and instead of waiting for your opponent, because there isn't the 17th chapter of Romans written by his opponents, the Apostle Paul produced the arguments of his opponents and then answered them. Because he had just pointed out to the Gentiles that keep the righteousness of the law, they look more circumcised than a circumcised Jew does. In verses 25 through 29 of chapter 2, The Jews would then reason this way in verse 1 of chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? The way you're talking, Paul, there's no advantage to being a Jew. Now in Romans 9, 4, and 5, he listed quite a few advantages, didn't he? To them pertaineth the adoption, the covenants, the glory, and so forth. What advantage then hath the Jew, Paul asks, on behalf of his opponents, his adversaries, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. I haven't taken away the blessings that God gave the nation of Israel. He gave them His Word. They had a Word that made them different from all the nations of Canaan. The chief blessing was the the Word of God. Not as though the Word of God have taken an effect, the promises, the covenants, and the giving of the law. Okay, their next argument. We've been through this thoroughly some time ago. Their second argument. Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? This is the religion of God, the faithfulness of God, the performance of God, the value and virtue of His promises. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? The the question and the argument is, if some did not believe, then does that mean that Israel is not going to get all the promises found in the Word of God? Is that going to destroy the effectiveness and the effectualness of God's Word? The apostle answers, God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. 
God's word gives God the right to judge men, and God judges men because they're all liars. It's more, it's worse than just if some did not believe. They're all unbelievers. It's all of grace. And the word of God sets God forth as being true and righteous in his judgment upon Israel. What if some did not believe? Does that ruin God's promises? Not at all. It just makes God able to judge. And the truth is, it's not that some did not believe. It's that we're all liars and only God is true. But I want you to notice here, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Not that the word of God hath taken none effect. Is it broken? Is God's promises to us Israelites broken? Because some don't believe in this passage, in that passage, Paul, your concern for Romans is such that you make it appear like God's promises to us have taken none effect. They've been destroyed. I hope you understand where I've headed and tried to explain this unusual sentence. We know God's word is always effectual, for God is true and omnipotent in his use of his own word. In Numbers chapter 23 and 19, it says that God is not a man that he should repent. When he has promised and said he's going to do something, it will come to pass. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, it says that his word that goeth forth out of his mouth shall not return unto him void. The Bible go Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, not a jot or a tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The Bible teaches that throughout. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The issue here in the words, not as though the word of God hath taken an effect, is not proportional. It's not, Paul is not saying, well, if you look at the gospel and see its effect, it's not had much of an effect, has it? A proportional issue, whereby using the second half of verse 6, he makes, he raises the proportion by pointing out that they're not all Israel, which are of Israel. That is a way that you may have thought about the passage. But he's not doing that. He's answering an objection. Have God's promises to Abraham failed? Have God's promises codified and written down in the Old Testament not come to pass for the people of Israel? No. That is not what I said. That is not what I'm teaching. And Paul does that in the words, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. They would accuse Paul of saying, God's promises to Israel have failed. The grief that you're showing about Israel indicates that there's going to be a rejection of Israel and Israel's going to be lost. Otherwise, you would not be saying such extreme things of being willing to be accursed from Christ for your kinsmen. You wouldn't be saying that unless some were going to be lost. Why would you say some would be lost when God promised they wouldn't be lost? Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. God's word stands as true as it ever has toward Israel. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. You have tried to apply the promises to Abraham to his entire progeny through Isaac and Jacob, and you're wrong. And don't accuse me of that. And my doctrine does not lend itself to God's word not being true and not bearing its proper result, the promises of God not being fulfilled. That is not true. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. 
That's a sentence in itself. They're in the first half of six. And we come to the second half of six. Four, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now I'm going to tell you something here that I don't really care which way you go. I'm going to tell you which way I go and why I go this way. When you read the words, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. We know what they're saying. What those words are saying, we know the bottom line. We know the conclusion. God has elected only some of national Israel for the promises of God. We know that there is a superset called Israel, and there is a subset called Israel. And that in order for us to distinguish the two, we have to give some adjective in there to help our minds. So the superset, we would say, is national Israel, or ethnic Israel, or all those that biologically have a relationship to Abraham, but within them is an elect Israel. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now you can arrive at it two different ways, and it doesn't matter how you look at that second half of verse 6. For they are not all elect Israel, which are of ethnic Israel. When I, if I use the word ethnic, what I mean is national or cultural or racially or religiously connected people to Abraham. So the word ethnic means. For they are not all elect Israel, which are of national Israel. Or they are not all national Israel, which are of elect Israel. It doesn't matter how you take it. You, Listen, I sweat bullets. I don't sweat as it were drops of blood because only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that for you. But I want to take every phrase, clause, and word of God's Word and understand it as well as we possibly can. It doesn't matter which way you run that because we have the identical conclusion. There is a superset of the nation, of the ethnic relatives of Abraham. And there is a subset, a smaller group, that were God's elect within that nation. There's no mention or implication of Gentiles at this point. We will get to them later. They're not here. This is the kinsmen of Paul. These are true Israelites. There's the superset and there's the subset. There is the whole nation. There is the elect portion. There's the ethnic relatives of Abraham coming through Isaac and Jacob. There are those that are the children of God. And of course you know, because you've read this chapter twice on two preceding Sundays, and you've read it many times before, that God is going to illustrate how there is the larger group of Abraham's six sons. But only one was the child of God. And then... It's going to get tighter. Now, see, Abraham had three different wives to have those six sons. So God is going to illustrate it even tighter by showing our father Isaac had conceived by one wife. Out of one wife and one womb and one birth, two sons, one was God's child and one was not. So we're seeing the superset, six, in the case of Abraham, six sons, one. Isaac, two sons, one. But the words in verse 6 are, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. I understand these words, For they are not all ethnic or national Israel, which are of elect Israel. Not the whole nation is part of the election of God. The reason I make this choice, and I don't consider it very important, the reason I make the choice is because of the context. Verse 7, neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, 
referring in the plurality to the six sons of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh. Notice what's being put first. The children of the flesh or the superset. These are not the children of God, which is the subset. And because the apostle runs that way, I run that way. But the issue is, and the conclusion is, there is national Israel. All those that thought they would be saved by their relationship to Abraham. And then there is God's Israel, which is a subset, only a part of that. Sometimes called a remnant in the Bible. Sometimes called a very small remnant of that that are truly saved by the election of grace. And this is a profound statement. We understand this Israel, to be elect Israel, coming out of the last part of verse 6. And so we are going to proceed through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 by knowing that there is a distinction in the use of the word Israel, that God is referring at times through Paul to the nation, And God is referring at times to the elect portion within the nation. And this point is incredibly important for us never to forget it and for our children to remember these words. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And it sounds like double talk, but the Lord is expecting you to make a distinction there that not all the national ethnic relatives of Abraham are the elect children of God. Because he goes on to describe that is exactly what he has under consideration. These are or these are not the children of God in verses 6 through 8. So that is the issue. The coordinating conjunction 4 that opens up this second sentence of verse 6, or this clause, the second clause of verse 6, the coordinating conjunction reconciles the reprobation of some Israelites and God's faithfulness. Don't accuse me, Paul is saying to the Jews, that God's word has taken none effect. His promises have failed. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. His promises have been fulfilled because they were made to a subset of the whole nation. Just like the promise made to Abraham about his seed was to a subset by Sarah only. It didn't count Hagar and it didn't count Keturah. There were six sons and he gave them gifts, but he sent them away. He didn't want them near his son. Profound statement. This distinction is crucial. There's more than one Israel. There's two Israels. There's a national, fleshly, carnal, reprobate Israel. And there is an elect, spiritual, eternal Israel. So within that nation that was God's chosen people, from an external advantage standpoint, there was only part of them that were God's elect children. Profound Profound means incredibly important and deep and necessary for us to rightly understand God's dealings with Israel, especially in these three chapters. Election has already been introduced in chapter 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? But here this election is applied, and it's applied in a way that an Israelite would not get excited about. It's an election that took place within their nation. They believed that their whole progeny, you could just have as many babies as you wanted because they have on their birth certificate descended from Abraham. They're all going to heaven. They're God's chosen people. And here the apostle says, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. 
There are two Israels, and one group is larger than the other. One is smaller than the other, and the smaller one is God's election. And sometimes in the Bible, it's very small. Paul had already introduced a division and a distinction among the Jews by pointing out in chapter 2, which I hope you might have read last night, verses 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But see, that's where they put all their emphasis. Birth certificate and circumcision. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter of the law, of on the eighth day it's supposed to be done to male children whose praise is not of men, but of God. Right. To, already the apostle has introduced it, but he did not belabor it there because way back there in Romans chapter 2 and 3, he is proving the condemnation that rests upon all men, Jews and Gentiles, and he doesn't want to get distracted by pointing out the election within the nation. When he finally gets to the three chapters, that, and he didn't know that he was going to have chapters 9 through 11, it's just part of his epistle, but when he got to that point, he opens it up by five verses, showing them he cared very much for them, and they had great privileges in order to warm his audience to these words, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And the horror that would grip the hearts of those that their entire lives were of a nationalistic mind that God saved our nation and rejected everyone else except those few Gentiles that would come over to us and let us circumcise them. It's our nation. And for Paul to say, they are not all Israel which are of Israel was something. And so now he's going to prove it by illustrations in the children of Abraham, illustration in the children of Isaac, illustration in the life of Pharaoh. Then he's going to prove it from the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Then he's going to prove it from their own scriptures. I would like to show you a few proofs of scripture. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. about God. This is not new. It's that the Jews wanted to ignore it. They hated the idea. Do you know how wonderful it would be if you were born into a family that was part of a nation where that nation and that family believed that you were automatically God's child by your first birth? Do you know how wonderful that would be? That you could just go and live any way you wanted? And what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Romans 3.3 you could just scoff at it. We have Abraham to our father. You know, do you understand the New Testament enough that I just gave you a sampling of verses about Abraham? Right. When the apostle Paul really wanted to make an appeal to his enemies that were Jews, did he, did he remind them that he was of the stock of Abraham? Oh, yes, he did. Because that was so vital to them. But oh, it had been hidden in the New Testament. It wasn't hidden, really. It was hidden to them because their eyes were blinded to see. And I, and I give you a few. This has been one of the most pleasant parts of my studying on Romans 9.6 is all that it has to say about the very small remnant in the Old Testament if they would have but read. And the Apostle Paul is going to pull these forward. Watch. Isaiah 1.9 Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. That verse is so vital, the Apostle Paul is going to use it. Romans chapter 9, 
Verses 27 and 28. Oh, yes, he is. He's going to use, verse 29, he's going to use it. Look at Isaiah chapter 10. Notice it says a very small remnant. We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. How many saved people were there in Sodom and Gomorrah? None. They're suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. You say, Lot, and Lot wasn't in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was in a cave because the angel forcibly dragged him out of the place. He was a just man and he's in heaven. The Bible tells us so. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, notice these words, the remnant of Israel, what's left over, a small part, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of the land. A judgment was coming from God that was going to be a consumption and it would overwhelm the majority of Israel, but there would be a remnant left that would be saved and would put their trust in the living God. That passage right there, quoted Romans chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 by the apostle. I'm cheating by jumping ahead because that's a privilege of living in 2011. I don't have to wait for the speaker in the pulpit to read Romans 9 to us for the very first time. We've been there before, but I want to show you these passages. Look at 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. By the time we get out of Romans chapter 9, you're going to know that there's a God that has eternal power and Godhead in a way that we cannot know from anywhere else but Romans 9. He is the potter and we are the clay. And if He makes us a vessel to dishonor, we will be dishonorable for eternity to the praise of His wrath and power. If He made us a vessel of mercy and a vessel of grace, He will show upon us His goodness and mercy and kindness and love for eternity. And He has it all in His hands because we put it all in His hands by our sin in Eden. But even before that, He is the potter and we are the clay. 1 Kings chapter 19. The Lord is reasoning with a very melancholy Elijah who says He's the only one left. Now that's a very small remnant. I'm the only one left. And you might as well go ahead and take my life. 1 Kings 19.18, the Lord says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. And this is quoted, Romans chapter 11, where it says, By the election of grace, there is a remnant just like that in Paul's day. These three passages, we can know that I'm not taking an Old Testament promise out of its context and using it in a way that it shouldn't be used because the Apostle quotes all three. Two in Romans 9, one in Romans 11. But let me share a couple more with you. Look at Isaiah 17 and verse 6. Isaiah 17, 6. My purpose at this moment is to show you that the very small remnant or the election within the nation existed in the Old Testament. 
Isaiah chapter 17, verse 6. The context is, is nice in some of these places, and you can look it up later. It's the burden of Samaria, the ten tribes. Verse 6, and Damascus of Syria, because they were confederate together. Verse 6, yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it. When the grape pickers went through the vineyard, they would pick all the grapes that were visible, which would be 97% of them. The few that were left, that's the election according to grace. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. How's that for a very small remnant? Do you like the way he describes it? Two or three berries at the top, four or five berries in the outmost branches, that when you're shaking the olive tree, they hung on. 24, Isaiah 24. Don't you ever despise the day of small things. Zechariah chapter 4 warns us to never despise the day of small things. Do you know how small that remnant was that came back to look at the mountain of rubble? It is called a mountain in Zechariah chapter 4 to rebuild Jerusalem. And they were very discouraged. And so God raised up two special prophets that had one purpose, encourage the rebuilding. Haggai, Zechariah. When you read those two prophets, they had one ministry, to help Zerubbabel, to help Joshua the high priest, get about the building project. Because it was so intimidating, and they were so small. And the Lord says, don't you dare despise the day of small things, because it's not by might nor by power but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And this foundation is going to be laid, and the cries are going to be, Grace! Grace unto it! Grace! And it was rebuilt. Isaiah 24, verse 13. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land, among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree, and as the gleaning grapes, when the vintage is done... The few grapes that are left after the vintage is taken, they shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the seas, Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. Even though there was burning rubble all around them, even though God's judgment had wiped out most of the nation, there would be a few left that would be praising the Lord in the midst of the fires. His very small remnant is seen through the pages of Scripture. But the Jews didn't want to believe that because the moment you believe that there is an election of grace, then it makes you utterly dependent upon God's grace and mercy for your salvation, and they would rather trust their birth certificate and their circumcised male member. And don't we, haven't we met Arminians that way? If God elects like you describe Him, I don't want your God. Have you ever heard that? What do we say? If God doesn't elect, I don't know of any other kind of God. Because if He's basing my eternal destiny on my performance, I'm lost. I want it based on His performance and by His electing grace. There's so many more of these. There really are. I'll give you one more. Isaiah chapter 6. Because Isaiah comes very close 
to sounding like Paul in Isaiah 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. It's taken full effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. God's promise that he would bless the seed of Abraham didn't have anything to do with Ishmael. Didn't have anything to do with the six sons of Keturah. It had everything to do with Isaac. The fact that the six sons of Keturah and Ishmael did not end up realizing the promises of God did not make the word of God of none effect because the effect was in Isaac. I hope I've... If he sends my soul to hell, his righteous law approves it well. But he knows I struggle with his word and every word of it as well as I am able. Isaiah 6. You know the first eight verses. Isaiah sees God upon his throne, the Lord Jesus Christ in full glory by prophecy. Holy, holy, holy in verse 3. An angel takes a coal of fire and takes away his iniquities of his polluted mouth. And he says, he hears the Lord, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. Now look at his commission. This is his ordination sermon from the Lord. Isaiah 6, beginning at verse 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. How's that for a commission to preach? Then said I, Lord, how long? Does it sound like Paul? Heavy, burden, and continual sorrow? Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. The abomination of desolation. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. That's how long. But yet in it shall be a tenth. And it shall return, and shall be eaten, as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. That passage is quoted six times in the New Testament to describe the New Testament ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. That they were to preach, and while their words were heard, they were not understood, and while they saw, they did not perceive, and God did not want them to because judgment had come upon that nation, and there was only going to be, in this particular case, it's called a tenth, left of them. And that tenth was was described like an oak tree. When you look at a tree in winter especially up north where there aren't all these evergreens around, and you see the whole landscape stripped of leaves, it appears that a tree is dead and there's no life in it. But there is life in an oak tree without leaves, isn't there? It's the substance. And though the nation would look like it had been utterly destroyed, there was a remnant, a tenth, that was the life of the nation. And it was the very small remnant. It was the Israel within an Israel. We could go on and on. It was it, it had been taught, but they didn't want to receive it. 
And here comes the apostle teaching again in Romans chapter 9. Isaiah was troubled like Paul, but the Spirit explained the small elect remnant to him as a tenth. Sometimes it was two or three berries or four or five berries. Sometimes it was the gleaning of the grapes after the vintage was done. The vintage is when all the grapes are brought in and turned into wine, and you have a label put in the bottle, 2011. But there were a few grapes out there that the gleaners would go get to take home and make jam from for their toast. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. It's taken full effect. Don't accuse me and my doctrine of altering or questioning the integrity of God and the promises he made by his word to Abraham and to the Old Testament Jews, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. This profound point we'll have to deal with at length more later. But I want you to know right now that whenever you run in to one of these people that want to talk about Israel, you ask them, what Israel are you talking about? Right. And you memorize Romans 9, 6b. That is the second half of the verse. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. When you read about the, when you, when you read anything by Tim LaHaye or Hal Lindsey or Jack Van Impey or you watch him on television or you hear anybody that listens to them or reads their books and they say anything about Israel, what Israel are you talking about? Paul said they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Paul said there were two Israels. Which Israel are you talking about? When they mention Jerusalem, you say to them, what Jerusalem are you talking about? There's two Jerusalems in the Bible. Paul told us there was two. There was an earthly Jerusalem that is in bondage with her children right now that is to be compared to Hagar and her son Ishmael. And that is to be cast out because her son shall not be an heir along with the son of the free woman. The Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all. The Apostle Paul would write Hebrews, that is Jewish believers in Hebrews chapter 12, and say that ye are now come unto the heavenly Jerusalem. Even though they had an earthly Jerusalem by their natural birth, that was no more. Paul said in Hebrews 13, 14, we do not have here a continuing city. It's in heaven. Abraham was looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Paul is making a profound distinction, and we will err so much in our understanding of the New Testament if we do not get this down pat. Right. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And he is going to illustrate it with individual souls, and he is going to prove it by the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and then he will prove it again by quoting from the Old Testament some of which I just gave you. If they talk about Israel to you, which they love to do, are they talking about the fleshly nation or the election within the nation? If they talk about it, Jerusalem, which they love to do, is it the cursed city here on earth or the blessed city that is above that is the mother of us all? If they talk about Mount Zion, we have one in heaven. Right, right. It is metaphorically in heaven. Our Zion is not on earth. It is unbelievable what men have done today. They not only have a continuing city... Paul said, we do not have a continuing city on this earth. They not only have a continuing city, they have a city that gets greater and greater and more and more important. Because in the millennium, everything is centered in Jerusalem. Unbelievable. This is called a Jewish fable. The Jewish fable was undone in Romans 9, 6. The Jewish fable was, the promises to Abraham were unconditional, and entirely extensive, completely extensive 
to all physical descendants of Abraham. And the apostle undid it in one one verse that has two clauses, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for this day. Brethren, I want to remind you, I want to remind you right now that those Jews took confidence in the fact that they were part of the external nation, the fleshly nation, but they were not part of the election of God. Do you know what happens in a church like this? We take confidence in the fact that we have been invited by the gospel to the marriage of God's dear son, and God is going to go through this assembly, especially in the great day of judgment, and is going to ask, friend, who invited you? And why don't you have a wedding garment on? And do you know what you will say? You will be speechless, according to Matthew chapter 22, verses 8 through 14. And then he will say, bind him and cast him into outer darkness. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many were citizens of Israel, but only a few were part of the election of grace. Many get called with the gospel get baptized by a Baptist minister and sit in Baptist churches and sing God's songs and hear God's word and bring the Bible with them to church. But they are not chosen. Well, what should I do about that? Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. May the Lord bless us to do that.